Romans chapter 2, therefore you have no excuse. Don't you just love hearing that we have no excuse? No excuse. No place to hide. Can't run away from it. Can't, can't try to talk your way out of it. You've got no excuse. Whoever you are, when you judge others, when you crema others, crema, temporary judgment in this life, but if it's going to apply for that, you better believe it applies for trying to establish someone's eternal judgment. You don't, don't even try. That's God's job. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. And if you think, well, no, I'm not, just go back and look at that last at the end of chapter 1. And if you're honest, you're going to see yourself in there somewhere at some point in your life. Hence, we all depend upon the same thing. Regardless of who we are, regardless of what kind of sinner we might be, regardless of what kind of a wretch we might be, to quote Amazing Grace, regardless of any of that, we all depend on the same thing, God's grace. God's unearned, unmerited, undeserved undeservable favor. You can't do anything to obtain it. God offers it freely from the cross for faith in Jesus Christ. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. If we're doing the very same thing and are depending upon God's grace for salvation and eternal life, if we're doing the very same kinds of things and are depending upon God's Forgiveness, God's grace, rather than on our good works, then who are we to judge at all? Certainly not the accusatory judicial judge who says, you are doing bad. Naughty, 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 you're going to hell kind of attitude. You say, we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is in accordance with the truth. <laughs> well, yeah. Do you imagine, whoever you are, that when you judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? If you're going to expect God to zap them, expect God to zap you. <laughs> Otherwise, the course is simple. Grace. Unmerited favor. Do you imagine, whoever you are, that when you judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? If, if God's grace, God's kindness, God's forbearance is for you, then certainly it's for your neighbor. How dare you disregard grace for them, but demand it for yourself? Do you despise, I, I love the wording there, do you despise the riches of his kindness? Uh, the NAS reads, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. 
The same thing that has led you to repentance leads your neighbor, the one whom you're judging. The same thing that saves you, Christ on the cross, his death for our sins, saves your neighbor too. But by your hard and impenitent heart, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, ooh, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. Sounds like by judging others, you're getting a boomerang effect here. You're storing up because of your hard and impenitent heart, your unwillingness to forgive, your unwillingness to, to express penitence, your unwillingness to repent, your unwillingness to recognize your own culpability, your own falling shortness, your own sinfulness. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. When we as, as sinners, when we as people who fail to meet God's standard, pretend to trust in grace but turn around and refuse to give it to others, we are in effect piling back on ourselves the penalty. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Or as we may remember it more being Protestants, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. If you don't forgive those who trespass against you, the implication is it'll be piled back on your head. But this sounds a little bit like reward punishment, or a little bit like the whole thing sounds like Old Testament. The it, more you read, the more Old Testament sounds. It, ref it reflects an issue of justice and righteousness. Mm -hmm. And the idea being if you forgive, you are forgiven. If you don't forgive, you are not forgiven. If you forgive, you are forgiven, which could be certainly construed as being a reward and a gift. And, and if, if you <laughs> don't forgive, you are punished, son. And if you, yeah, there is that concept is there. But yeah. if you are truly forgiven and you truly accept the forgiveness and truly realize that you don't deserve it or haven't earned it, then you're going to turn around and, and, and forgive others. You're going to respond. It becomes faith at that point when you have received forgiveness even though you don't deserve it and then you turn around and give it to others. That becomes an act of faith. Whereas if you don't turn around and give it to others, you're not exercising faith. And hence, you're no longer connecting to the source of grace. When that happens, you've got a problem. Yes, there is an issue of justice and righteousness here. And injustice is committed when someone who is forgiven much refuses to forgive little. Or much. And here we have, here we have people who, who believe that they, they are better than other sinners 
because they don't do certain things. And what Paul is saying, but you do other things. Or you have people who believe they are better because of their heritage or their ancestry or their religious attainments as a Jew. Now that they're Jewish Christians, they're looking down upon these Gentile Christians who had a rack of sins, many of which were talked about in chapter 1, this idolatry practice. And Paul is saying, uh, don't be so quick here to judge. You do many of the same kinds of things in many different ways. Who are you to judge? The same grace that saves you saves them. And I was thinking this week, uh, these Gentile Christians, these new people, at, at, when Paul is writing this, what did they have? They had the Beatitudes, and they had the Matthew, the fifth chapter in Matthew. Uh, you mean what did they have? Yeah, for the laws. The, the Jews have uh, the Ten Commandments and all the Levitical laws. At this point in time, they have the teachings of Jesus, which is what we have now in Matthew and Luke, uh, but which at that time they didn't have the written gospels. Ah. So they were going on the oral teachings and possibly the Q source, which is the common source between Matthew and Luke that Mark didn't have. <clears throat> they had that written saying source possibly by this time. In, in, the saying source was circulating in Palestine in the 50s. So by this time, it could have made its way to Rome, but we don't know that. But they, we do know that they would have heard the teachings, the oral teachings of Jesus. Hence, they would have been familiar with many of the Beatitudes and most principally with the whole concept of love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. But all of those rules and regulations from the Torah is foreign to them. They don't know it. They've never heard it. They haven't lived the dietary regulations or any of the blood purity laws or any of that other stuff. They may be familiar with the Ten Commandments and recognize them as having analogs in other religious practices and communities, but it doesn't have the same weight for them. So you can see why he comes down harder on the Jew then. Well, because the because Jewish Christians were very frequently, with, within the context of the churches where he had pastored before, and he suspects, I suppose, in Rome as well, um, within the context, you had Jewish Christians persecuting Gentile Christians, saying, you're not really a Christian. You haven't really gotten there. You've gotten in the door through faith in Jesus Christ. But now, to really get it, you've got to become a Jew, too. And start abiding by all these rules and regulations. And until you do that, you're a second class citizen in the kingdom of God. That seems to be what was going on. It certainly was going on in Galatia. There were aspects of it going on in Corinth. That was certainly going on back in Palestine, where the, where the James crowd was in control, big time. Uh, was it going on in Rome too? There seems to be indications that it was. And it seems to be probable, reasonable conclusion to draw that wherever you had a large group of Jewish Christians in the church, you also had the assumption being drawn. Christianity is a sect of Judaism, therefore, Gentiles coming in is good. They come in through faith in Jesus Christ, but now they've got to start obeying the rules. 
men get circumcised, women start cooking kosher, making kosher clothing, you know, planting your fields in the kosher sense, that kind of stuff. Keeping the blood purity laws, all that stuff. And, and, and that seems to be a factor that was true in the New Testament church wherever you found it. Gentiles would be accept, expected when they were received by the Jewish Christians, they would be expected to then become Jews. Paul was saying, uh, uh no. And the, the, the result, the resolution of the Jerusalem Council was, no, Gentiles can be accepted in, they don't have to be circumcised, but they have to abstain from blood and from everything that is strangled and from fornication, and if they do that, they'll be okay. Sort of the missing letter of James, the, the letter from the <laughs> Jerusalem Council. And actually, if you go back into the Old Testament, you note that those were the requirements for any alien, non-Jew, non-Hebrew, living amongst Hebrews. They had to abide by these simple things. A, a, a shortened version of dietary law, especially dealing with issues of blood and fluid transfer. So, like if you're sitting around a table, having table fellowship together, you got Jews and Gentiles eating together, the Gentiles were expected to abstain from eating those kinds of things that would have been horrible for, for Jews to see other people eat. No medium rare steaks. That's exactly what I was thinking. That would be a good waste. Yeah. Yeah. Medium rare. Mm. You can have the beef, but you can't have the medium rare. No, you can't have the blood. No blood in the meat. Where, where are these Gentiles, most of the Gentiles, getting their information? Okay. Um, the earliest influx of Gentiles into the church occurred through the God-fearers. Those few Gentiles who attended synagogue, they, they did not become Jews because the men didn't get circumcised. They didn't follow the dietary regulations other than the minimal requirements when you were around Jews. But they didn't adopt them for themselves. The God-fearers that we read about in the Acts of the Apostles and a little bit in the Gospels were those Gentiles who had heard the Torah proclaimed and had attended synagogue but hadn't gone, to, to mix your metaphors, whole hog and become <laughs> Jews. <laughs> 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 That's right. And, and those were the very first. But that was only true where you had synagogues. And then it wasn't true for all the earliest Gentile Christians because they would then take the gospel outside the synagogues or, they would, or Paul would go to a town like, like Philippi where there was no synagogue and establish a church completely separate from the Jewish synagogue tradition. And in those places, you didn't have any God-fearers. But early on, for example, in Corinth, it started in the synagogue, then it moved out of the synagogue, and it, was, it occurred in, in someone's home, and it grew amongst the Gentiles so that you had a large mass of people who had only heard about the teachings of Jesus and about his death and resurrection and what that meant and hadn't heard much of the Torah teaching. But they were hearing it from Jews, weren't they? They were hearing it from Jews and other Gentiles, God-fearers who are now Christians. Right. And mostly Jews, percentage-wise, mostly Jews? Well, within, within Palestine, in close proximity to, to Israel itself, yes. But once you get outside, the mixture of early Christians, Jewish Christian to Gentile, God-fearer Christian, now Christian, 
Well, it, it was a declining factor. The Jews declined out as in terms of a percentage as the numbers of Gentiles grew. So eventually, especially in those churches that were far flung from Palestine, you would get a whole lot of Gentiles teaching Gentiles. Some of them would be God-fearer Gentiles, but for the most part, no. So that was what the situation was, and that seems to be the situation that you kind of had present in the Roman church. You had Jewish Christians, you had Gentile Christians, and the Jewish Christians seemed to be saying to these Gentile Christians, okay, you're in, but now you got to start being a good Jew. And they were looking at their idolatrous past and all those things that they did, and they were saying, you are just stinky, awful people. You naughty, naughty people, you. And Paul is saying, wait a minute now. The same grace that forgives your inability to keep the Torah completely forgives them. Even though they weren't under the law. You were. They were condemned outside of it, as we're going to read in a minute. You're condemned under it. And it's only by grace that you get in at all. So who, how dare you? Who are you to judge them? For they are saved the same standard as you. Grace. The gold standard, if you will, in this case. Verse 5 talks about the, the wrath that's stored up against them. Mm -hmm. Would that be um, the wrath of falling outside of God's grace, a, a, a eternal damnation? Well, that is partially how I just interpreted it a few minutes ago. Okay. But by your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. Now, right there, you've got two ideas. Storing up wrath for yourself and on the day of wrath. The day of wrath... Amera or Gase is usually equated to the day of judgment. The great white throne day of judgment? Yeah. When God's wrath is meted out towards all sinners. Those whose names are not written in the book of life. And then they're tossed into the, the lake of fire. But that's not written here. I mean, it doesn't say it here. But that it's, you know, the, the, it, in fact, it's kind of usually connected more with a general conception of Judgment Day, whatever Judgment Day is. The Day of Wrath would be Judgment Day. Did Jesus talk about the Day of Wrath and Judgment Day a whole lot, or at all? Some. It was part of his teaching, but it wasn't as uh, critical as many of the other things he taught. He taught, he taught more about giving than he did about that. Yeah, loving. I don't remember much But he about that. did speak some about the end and about the day of judgment. You know, flee. And it's there. But it makes up a smaller tributary of his teaching. Here, and, and it makes up a fairly small tributary right here. Uh, look at the first part. You are storing up wrath. Now, what does it mean to store up wrath? And... And by your heart and impenitent heart, it's almost as if by judging another, you're truly reflecting that you, you have not been penitent. You really haven't sought repentance. You haven't really sought forgiveness. 
if you're hanging other people's sins over them, you really haven't sought forgiveness for your own, is the kind of idea. Hence, hard and impenitent. And by doing that, you're just heaping on yourself more and more and more wrath by taking God's position. Making you, it's another form of idolatry. You're making yourself God and saying, okay, you've got it, you've got it, you don't, you don't, you do, you don't, you do. And that worked out real well for Lucifer. Yeah. <laughs> he lost his name over that and got thrown out of being the choir master in heaven. Hmm. But by your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Do you think he termed it that way because if he was talking to the Jews, they had a concept of... Um... He's speaking to Jews right here, principally. Anybody who does it qualifies, but... but you know, there's multiple contexts. There's the original context. Original context, about 95% Jewish Christians. Because it doesn't really make sense to us in terms of storing up wrath. I mean, no. if, if you're, if you're going to be tossed, it doesn't matter how far or how high. I mean, it, yeah. the concept of levels of wrath, I guess. I mean, you know, come on. A little bit of wrath and, 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 a, and a whole lot of wrath. And when, it, when you're talking about yeah. eternity, is <laughs> you don't want any wrath. <laughs> you want none. You want you want simple love and grace and forgiveness and acceptance. But unless you're willing to meet that out yourself to others, you are reflecting an impenitent heart. Grace is a freely given thing, but it calls forth from us a definite action of faith. It calls forth from us faith that is alive and means something. And it's not just doing good for others. If it, if it were just that, you know, that would be James's understanding. Instead, it's, it's not just doing good for others, but forgiving others. Remember what he said when he gave them the authority to forgive sin? The sins of any that you forgive are forgiven. The sins of any that you retain are retained. We usually forget the second half of that. There's a humongous responsibility involved when you refuse to forgive. And if it's based in this type of thing, i.e. you thinking they don't deserve it, then really what you're doing is you're, you're fo focusing that wrath on yourself. You may think they're going to get it, get zapped for it, but in reality, it's going to be you. I mean, you may get into heaven, but you'll be sweeping the streets of gold. Kind of <laughs> an attitude and idea. <laughs> I, I, I would rather not deal with that. <laughs> I would rather, you know, and and while his original context, his original audience was like ninety five percent Jewish Christians at this point, it applies to you know, all of us today. Without exception, anybody who turns around and freely accepts grace and then refuses to mete it out to others, first of all, is cheap is treating it cheaply for themselves and making it awfully expensive much for other people. And yet, Christ paid for it all. Jesus is to give away as Jesus wishes. Who are you to say? Sorry, Jesus, you can't forgive. Jesus, you can't forgive Lee. Sorry, you just can't. 
because he's done things that I don't think he should be forgiven of. That's essentially what you've got going on here. All right. You've been peeking. <laughs> you know I love to use examples. <laughs> I could have done it with Karen, but no one would have believed it. <laughs> no, no free lunch. There ain't no such thing as a free lunch. For he, who's the he here? God. For he will repay according to each one's deeds. Now, this is the part we had trouble with last time. To those who, by patiently doing good, Seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. Hold it for just a second. That's the part that we had trouble with last time. Thinking about it within the context of what we just talked about. Doing good. Deeds and doing good. Patiently doing good. Could be understood as exactly what we're talking about here. Not miserly giving grace but freely proclaiming the gospel and living in faith while for those who are self-seeking and who obey not the truth but wickedness and making your setting yourself up as the judge of others is wickedness and self-seeking you think you're God there will be wrath and fury. Ugh. I mean, seven is tough because it sounds like works righteousness, but it's not. Eight is tough because the self-seeking bit, and who, those who who obey not the truth but wickedness. You know, we we don't want to think of ourselves as being self-seeking and wicked, and yet it is so easy to slip into that. So very easy. There will be anguish and distress for everyone who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. <laughs> oh, you know, it's the Jew first and also the Greeks. I mean, you know, you, you Gentile folk, you're hearing this. You're not off the hook either. But. You know that um, the doing evil, and I have a couple different translations here, which. I like a little bit better. The doeth evil seems like, well, if you just do evil once, you fall in that category. <laughs> Who hasn't? <laughs> yeah. This other version I have, I, I like a little bit better. Um, Who persist in wrongdoing. Who I mean, persist. I'm, I'm hoping that it's really well, talking about those who don't want to change and don't, who well, continually resist that. What is the part of speech of the verb does? Does evil. It's present tense. It's continuous. It's continuous. Which means that it's, you have persisted, you have done it, and you're doing it now. It's not just, I had an evil moment. It's that you, you persistently do evil. That's, that makes that a good translation. Yeah. And, I, and I like that when you take that in context with up here in the in verse 5 when he's talking about your unrepentant heart. Right. That you, they just don't change and don't want to change. They just keep doing the same old Keep on thing. doing it. Exactly. <clears throat> there will be anguish and distress. 
tribulation and distress. Possible translation there. For everyone who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. He's an equal opportunity rewarder and an equal opportunity punisher. <laughs> That's right. See, that reward punishment kind yep. of comes in. Okay. Yeah, got Hebrew scriptures. Mm hmm. I thought That's we were saved from all that, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, it's extremely tough. This one verse, the Amplified Version, says, But glory and honor and heart peace shall be awarded to everyone who habitually does good. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so it's not even just good enough to do good, That's right. but yeah, you got to make it really Who persists in good. Persists forever. Use yeah. the same translation because it's the same part of speech. Forever. Who persists in doing good. I mean, if you interpret doing good as works. I don't. Right, but I'm just saying, somebody. It'd be easy to do that. Could easily read this and not understand. James Paul's probably Not just good works here. We're he talking about. <laughs> what is the good? What is the good? The good is faith in Jesus Christ and all that that means. Active belief. And the flow that comes from faith in God's grace, which are true, divinely inspired good works. That's part of it. But, you, but good is not sufficient. It's not sufficiently good if it's just works. And it's frankly not sufficiently good if it's just belief. It has to be faith. All who have sinned, verse 12. All who have sinned apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. It doesn't matter if you've had the law or not. You know, if you've sinned, you've sinned and you'll perish, period. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Ugh. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous in God's sight. But the doers of the law who will be justified. Well, that sounds like James. <laughs> this part is where you get the stuff that sounds quite a lot like James at times. This has obey, so I like that better. Who obey. obey. The law. It's kind of like doing what you're supposed to do. Right? Obedience type thing. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. The doing of the law, and this reflects back to that idea of having the law written on your hearts and doing the law, not just hearing it, but living it. And what is the law? Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The fundamental core of the law, which Jesus completely, perfectly exemplified and fulfilled when he went to the cross for us. Which means that doing the law means living within and by the presence of Christ and being Christ's presence to others in all that that means. For, for it is not the hearers of the law. Hearers as in, oh, we just heard it. We know it. We've, we've, we've listened to it. But we're going to go do our own thing. 
who are righteous in God's sight, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Those who live with the law imprinted on their hearts. When the, and here we got that, got it stated right here. When Gentiles who do not possess the law do, and here you got a problem, do instinctively. Anybody have a different word there but instinctively? By nature. By nature. By nature. Obey by natural instinct. By natural <clears throat> instinct. That gets both words in there. Yeah, they sure do. Yeah. What does your 14 say there? He will punish sin wherever it is found. He will punish the heathen when they sin, even though they never had God's written laws. For down in their hearts they know right from wrong. God's laws are written within them. Their own conscience accuses them, or sometimes accuses them, excuses them. And God will punish the Jews for sinning because they have his written laws but don't obey them. They know what is right but don't do it. After all, salvation is not given to those who know what to do unless they do it. Read just 14. Oh, just 14. I'm going to say, my uh -huh. goodness, they packed a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? These numbers are so little. Can I see your living Bible? Yes, sir. Sure. What the man find? <laughs> just for a second. Oh, no. Okay, now you know. Sorry. I've got to find it. I've got to find it. Did they rename Romans or did they keep the... <laughs> <laughs> they just kind of let it flow. No, back. still, <laughs> still Romans. Oh, my word, you're right. They, <laughs> they did 13 through 15 as one clump. Gosh, there this is tough. Uh, God's laws are written within them. Their own conscience accuses them or sometimes <clears throat> excuses them. When Gentiles who do not possess the law do instinctively what the law requires, these, though not having the law, are a law to themselves. They show that what the law requires is written on their hearts, to which their own conscience also bears witness. So, they really didn't like the structure of the passage, so they rewrote it. That's what, that is not just dynamic equivalence, that's paraphrastic. That's where it becomes its weakest, is by doing that. All who have sinned apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all the who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous in God's sight, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Acting, acting with the law internalized. Doing the law is the idea here. Not just obeying laws that are written outside of you. But living the law internalized. Is it that faithing thing again? It's exactly the faithing thing. Okay. And that's what we have here. When Gentiles who do not possess the law, they don't have the Torah, do instinctively what the law requires. Instinctively. That word is problematic. By natural instinct, by nature. I would say by internal compulsion. It's internalized. I would say it's not something that is natural to them. 
but is flowing from God's presence within them. That residual goodness mm -hmm. of God mm -hmm. breathed in all mankind. The Imago Dei, the image of God, that echo there that has been reestablished by Christ's death on the cross for all. Remember, there's there's a, the two the two pronged act of the cross. The first act, which is universal, reestablishes within all human beings the ability to say yes. Before that, you have no ability. You're dead. But Jesus' death on the cross brings grace that goes before anything that we do, and everybody gets it. And it's an opportunity or the ability to say yes. There's the second act, which is particular. It's not universal. And it's to those who do say yes. And it's justification, God's grace that forgives us and regenerates us. That first and universal act from the cross gives us not just an awareness that there's a hole in our spirit that needs to be filled, but also sort of turns us to notice God here. The thing that's going to fill your hole is Jesus. He's over here. Not that money tree or that Zeus or whatever. So it's not so much instinct as it's a gift from the cross that's completely internalized. When Gentiles who do not possess the law do instinctively what the law requires, these, though they have not having the law, are a law to themselves. They show that what the law requires is written on their hearts, to which their own conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts will will accuse or perhaps excuse them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God through Jesus Christ will judge the secret thoughts of all. That right there is what we were talking about when we were going through chapter 1 and we were talking about natural revelation. <clears throat> That's it. What conflicting thoughts? That means, that, could that mean they don't quite have it, but they almost have it? They have both the voice of God talking to them. They hear God, but they have the conflictingness of, well, for lack of a better way of identifying it, Satan saying, no, you are God, or Zeus is God, or I am God, or whatever. Anything but God is God. And that could very well be the idea. I was thinking that they could, if they did it by logic, and it, you know, and they don't quite get it. Reason. Yeah. Uh, well, the the philo the philosophers' reason functioned within this parameter, and they knew that there was a God, a Creator, by observing the natural revelation, and what they observed resonated within by this written law, and they responded, and they were right in that. This is also reflects that idea of you, you act with a light that you have been given and God will judge all people with the light that they have been given. This is that light that's been spoken about. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast of your relation to God and know his will and determine what is best because you are instructed in the law 
And if you are sure that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then that teach others, will you not teach yourself? Man, Paul, you can get sarcastic. <laughs> Dripping here. Sarcasm dripping. I'm sure Tertius's pen, Quill, was just overflowing with sarcasm ink here. Will you then, you then that teach others, will you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You that forbid adultery, do you commit adultery? You that abhor idols, do you rob temples? You that boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? You think you've earned your salvation by, by keeping the law. You're boasting in your attainment. Look at me, look at me, look at what I've done. I'm a good Pharisee. I've managed to keep this good approximation of the law. That makes me good, right? Sarcasm <laughs> says no. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You wonder why Gentiles laugh at and disbelieve Yahweh's existence or that Yahweh is God. They do it because of you. Oh, we have the same thing today. Of course we do. People in the world look at, at uh, preachers and Christians and see hypocrisy, lying and cheating and stealing, fights within churches, preachers who get up and preach against adultery and then get out of the pulpit and get in the car and drive to a motel to commit adultery. Except for perfectionist doctrine. What? Well, it's very similar to what the Jews were doing themselves. The Jews were proclaiming a perfectionist Absolutely. doctrine. And, and Jesus it, was talking similarly here about, well, you think murder is this, but if you yeah, hate it in your heart, hate you, in your heart you have committed this. it. Mm -hmm. If you look with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. He was doing that to illustrate that it's impossible for you to keep the law. That's not what it's about. But if you're going to depend upon the law, then keep it. And you better be able to keep all of it, without exception, from the get-go. There weren't monasteries back then. There weren't monasteries back then. Monasteries didn't help. Trust me, I lived in one of them. They didn't help. They didn't help. They made it harder, but they didn't help. I would think it would be. I would think that you would maybe get the same sense of being elevated above other people who aren't that committed. I mean, that tendency has got to be there. It's there. And it would be just yet another hook that you An get us and them into. attitude. Yeah. Look at us. We be so holy. <laughs> the Essene. <laughs> the Essene community is a good example of a Jewish. Uh, monastic type community they believe themselves to be superior to all the other Jews in their day especially superior to those in Jerusalem who were the religious leaders who were cavorting with the, the Gentile sinners and denying the, of that group also? 
There's a really good argument that can be made that James, if he wasn't an Essene, was closely related to them in terms of his thinking. James was highly regarded in Jewish circles because he was constantly in the temple, constantly praying, had knees like camel's knees, it says about him in Eusebius, that he was always there. So faithful was he to keeping the law as a good Pharisee that in the end, the Jewish authorities, when, when Jerusalem was being sieged by the Romans during the Civil War, the, the, the Jewish authorities thought that James would recant his faith in his brother, half-brother, step-brother, whatever, would recant his faith in Jesus to, to support the party line. And you got to hand it to James, he didn't do it. But they thought he was such a holy man, he was always in the temple, he was always praying. He's a good Jew, just also a nut. He thinks his brother was the Messiah who died a bunch of years ago. Crazy man, but you know, he's a good Jew. He'll recant it and then, and then he'll support our position. James didn't do that and they killed him for it. They killed him for it. So he held a very, a very respected position and many of his practices and beliefs seem to echo some of the Essene type thinking. And, and there may very well have been a connection between the Essene community and James. There may have been. It's more likely that there was a connection between John the Baptist and the Essenes, although John the Baptist would have been thrown out by the Essenes because he did things like eat locusts. Of course, I would throw him out too. <laughs> <laughs> Barbecued locusts is not my idea of a delicacy. Circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, oof. Circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. You might well have not been circumcised. Why go through the pain and the blood of being circumcised thinking that's going to save you? If you're going to break the law in other ways, you know, again, to mix the metaphors, if you're going to keep one law, you've got to keep them all. You've got to go in whole hog or nothing. So if those who are uncircumcised keep the requirements of the law, will not their uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? What is circumcision? What was circumcision? Outward sign. Outward sign of what? Huh? Outward sign of the covenant? Of the covenant relationship, yes. Outward uh, sign of an inward commitment. Of an inward commitment. In, in a sense, circumcision was a form of a sacrament for the Jewish community. Baptism began to evolve in part to supplement circumcision and to provide women with a way of being uh, capable of expressing their membership in the covenant community. And it had a, a multiple, just as the Eucharist is repeatable for us and baptism technically isn't, for them, baptism, you can't, well, first of all, you couldn't repeat circumcision. Once circumcised, you know, 
you just don't want to take off anymore, gentlemen. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but you could repeat this baptismal act, reflecting membership in the community. But circumcision is this outward, visible, physical, identifiable sign of membership in the community. And, and back in really ancient times, it was how you knew that you could trust the guy you're treating with. You know where the handshake evolved. Oh, tell us again. <laughs> <laughs> sure, I want to know. <laughs> you didn't shake hands, friends. <laughs> you shook something else. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Then it developed into that idea that you shook hands with your right hand because that was your sword hand. Of course, there's multiple meaning there too. In that, but, I, but, but within the ancient Near Eastern practice of shaking hands, it originally evolved from the process that you would reach into the robe to find out if this person was part of your community. And if he was, you could trust him. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Getting goosed to prove your trustworthiness. <laughs> so is that why they had the women in one side and the men in the other side? <laughs> <laughs> separate them. Yeah. <laughs> circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcised. So. If those who are uncircumcised keep the requirements of the law, will not their uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then those who are physically uncircumcised but keep the law will condemn you that have the written code and circumcision but break the law. I'm kind of surprised those Jews let him last so long, aren't you? <laughs> I mean, I'm surprised they didn't kill him. String him up. String him up. Get a rope. The Romans must have been protected. Well, they did try several times. Yes, but, they did. But, you know, let's finish the chapter. Then we'll come back and maybe think about it a bit more. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly. I mean, he's writing this to Jewish Christians. To people who, to men who were priding themselves in their circumcision. Look at me. I don't want to look at that. <laughs> look at me. I'm circumcised. Those filthy, rotten, Gentile Christians, they are not. They ought to be. To keep the law. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. Rather, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And real circumcision is a matter of the heart. It is spiritual and not literal. Such a person receives praise not from others but from God. Not praise for your ability to keep the law, approximate some anemic list of behaviors that have been set aside by the community and said, here, you do these things and you'll be considered good, a good Jew, or in the 
today's circumstances, a good Christian? No. Not at all. It's what's inside. What is the circumcision of the heart, in other words? A person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And real circumcision is a matter of the heart. It is spiritual and not literal. Membership in the community. Membership in the covenant community is about what goes on inside. Being a Christian is not about the externals. But speaking to Jewish Christians here who believe that it is about a matter of externals. Circumcision, dietary regulations, blood purity laws, all that junk. Whether or not you push the button on the elevator on the Sabbath day. All the junk. Whether or not you could eat an egg that was laid on the Sabbath day. All the junk. No, it's not about the external junk. It's about what happens on the inside. It's about faith. It's about God's grace. It's about being a member of the covenant community internally. Not keeping the law because you have the written code. Because you have the external covenant symbol. Jesus telling the Pharisees they were like whitewashed tombs. Right. They'd pretty on the outside. They ended up being pretty on the outside and they were dead and rotten on the inside. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly what he's saying. Paul is echoing Jesus here and telling these Jewish Christians who are priding themselves in being Jews, these Gentile Christians are more Jews than you because they live the law by living by faith. By living in God's grace, by faithing, they live the law. They may not have the outward symbol of circumcision. They may not have had the Torah. They may have been idolaters. They may have done all this horrible stuff. They may have enjoyed going to the temple and enjoyed having sex with the prostitutes there and the, the temple priests and priestesses. They may have had a wonderful time eating unkosher food and all that stuff. And they may still eat ham and cheese sandwiches. And pepperoni pizza. But <laughs> they are better Jews. They are more Jews. They are real Jews because they have circumcision of the heart. They have Christ within them. They have law. The one who manifested and completed the law, Jesus, within them. They live the law. You talk about the law. You hear the law. You have the external signs of the law. But you don't have the law within. Because you think that it's important to have these external symbols. He's beaten up on these Jewish Christians. Mm -hmm. He's beaten up on them. Because they've been beaten up on the Gentiles. And he's trying to show them that it's not about the outside. It's not about circumcision. It's not about dietary regulations. It's not about blood purity. It's not about homosexuality. It's not about idolatry in that sense. It's about whether or not you worship God and God alone and have the word of God written in your heart. Have Jesus alive within you. Have the circumcision of the heart. That's what it's about. Not the externals, the internals. It's not about what you wear, what you eat, or who you do. It's about, <laughs> it's about 
to whom you belong and how you live your life according to God's grace. And do you exercise faith or are you self-serving? Do you live to do good, which is to employ grace in your life and live by faith? Or are you a self-serving person who is wicked, wanting to be God his or herself? That's the question of chapter 2. We get so hung up on these externals. In the, in the church, we get hung up on what church are you a member of? Are you Baptist, Church of Christ, Assembly of God, Methodist, Roman Catholic, Lutheran, Episcopalian? Pagan, excuse me. Episcopalian? What are you? Well, who cares what brand you are? Presbyterian? Uh, were you baptized by Paulus or John yeah. or Peter? Or in today's context, were you baptized by immersion, sprinkling, or pouring? Or not at all. Or not at all. Do you have communion every week, once a month, once a year? Do you use wine or grape juice? Leavened or unleavened bread with shot glasses or a common cup? All that stuff is unimportant. What's important is the internal, the circumcision of the heart. What's important is having the law written within and having it live out through you in these doing good deeds bit. In this, to translate that back from Paul uh, in this language here, in living the life that God empowers you to live. Doesn't matter what your ancestor, your background is. Were you a good Jew of a good Jewish family? You know, a, a son of Pharisees and a grandson of Pharisees and a great-grandson of Pharisees? whoop de doo Or were you an idolater and the son of the high priestess and high priest of the temple of Artemis? Well, whoop de doo for that too. And that's not going to be any worse for you because of God's grace. It may be harder for a good son and grandson and great-grandson of Pharisaic Jews to live by faith in the kingdom of God than it is for the son and grandson and great-grandsons of the high priest and priestess of the temple of Artemis. Because the one who comes from the Jewish family thinks he's already got it. And, and Jesus is a nice additive. is icing on the cake, but they've got the cake. Whereas these Greeks, they never had the cake. And they get the icing, which brings the cake. listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2008 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.